Let's go. Okay. Three, two, one. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. And I'm Anna Van Dyne. And today, we're going back in time. There's a little red schoolhouse right in the heart of Vermont on the Moortown Common Road in Washington County. It has a sloping roof, big windows, and a small bell tower on top. It is the iconic image of a rural American one-room schoolhouse. Um, One of my favorite one-room schools is in the commons at the top of the hill. That's Chelsea Smiley. So, yeah, I think right across from the cemetery on the green, that was part of our daily walk when we lived in Moortown. Chelsea has noticed that there are old one-room schoolhouses like this one in Moortown all over the place. You've probably seen them, too. These days, some of them have been converted into homes, some of them are community centers, some are in states of disrepair. Chelsea's always thought they were beautiful, almost a part of the landscape. And I I hadn't really thought about them too much until we as a community were voting on consolidating. You might tense up when you hear that word, consolidating. It's something that's been discussed in many Vermont towns over the past few years, and many of those discussions have been fraught. Chelsea now lives in the town of Moncton, not to be confused with Moortown, which is in the thick of a consolidation debate. The local school district might be closing three of its five elementary schools next year. But all over the state, Chelsea saw those old one-room schoolhouses, and none of them appeared to be serving its original purpose. And Chelsea realized that maybe what her town is grappling with isn't new. We've gone through this before. Welcome to Brave Little State, BPR's people-powered journalism project. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience. Because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Today, a question about school consolidation, but not the kind that's in the news right now. Then versus now, school consolidation. Old school houses pepper the landscape. What is our school closing history? How did Vermont end up with so many small one-room schools? And why don't we use them anymore? We have support from VPR sustaining members. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. So I grew up in Moortown. And in the beautiful kind of Vermont coincidence that I've almost stopped being surprised by, the little red schoolhouse our question asker Chelsea was talking about, it happens to be the one-room schoolhouse that I would have gone to if I'd been born a few generations earlier. If I'd gone there, I would have walked a half mile down a dirt road and sat at a wooden desk. My classmates would have been kids of all ages— 
One teacher, probably a woman, would have taught us our lessons on a blackboard. As I remember, you went in. Uh, there was a what we called the cloakroom, and it was big, one big open room with big windows. Denise Gabbery went to this school. Today, she's the president of the Moortown Historical Society. There were two uh, kids in the first and second grade when I was there, and uh, myself and Bobby Thompson, which worked out very well because the swing set had two swings. Denise says the school building was painted white at the time, not red. She recalls there were fewer than 20 kids in the school in grades one through eight. There was one teacher, Mrs. Howes. She lived between us and the school, and they had a farm, so we would go down there and and play with the farm animals and help them around the farm. So I knew her more as a person than I remember her as a teacher. This is more or less what school was like for most kids in Vermont for generations. Schools were small and deeply rooted in the community by nature. Before cars and buses, kids had to be able to walk to them. It was typical for each town to have a handful of different schools. In the 1870s, Moortown, which is about 40 square miles, had 14 districts. Around that time, there were well over 2,500 schools in Vermont. All right. So, Angela, are you ready for a history lesson? Yes, I can't wait. (laughs) All right. And I should say that like any history lesson, it can't encompass everything. And I'm going to have a little help. And how old are you? How old am I? I'm ancient. I'm 77. That's William J. Mathis, or less formally, Bill. And I didn't call him just because he's been around longer than I have. I called him because he's a senior advisor to the National Education Policy Center, and he just served a decade on the Vermont State Board of Education. He's also written a history of education in the state. Well, so Anna, where does this history lesson start? That is the same question that I asked Bill. And he says the story begins all the way back in 1777 with the Vermont State Constitution. It established that all towns in the state should have a school. And Bill says the reason for this is tied to the reason that we have schools at all. The whole idea of education was to build a democratic society. And he says Vermont was the first state to adopt a general provision for the education of children, as in universally, for everybody. That's pretty fine stuff. But it's also a reason why things have been kind of complicated. How is that? Well, the entire story of education in Vermont has been marked by a lot of tensions, like between communities and the state, population changes, finances, equity, quality, efficiency. It's like a hundred different big rubber bands which are all pulling in different directions and humming right along as they contest with each other. So there's a long lineage of these kinds of debates in Vermont's history. And like I said, it's complicated and we can't get to it all. But we do have a lot to cover here. So, Angela? Yes? I was thinking that in the spirit of the topic, we could talk about this story as a school play. (laughs) (laughs) And present to our listening audience, Vermont's history of school consolidation in three acts. I love it. All right. So, act one? Act one is the vicious act. Bill told me that for a long time, things stayed relatively simple, like people built schoolhouses where they needed them, and the budget was whatever they paid the teacher. And that changed in the late 1800s. In 1890, the Vermont legislature established a property tax to streamline education funding in towns around the state. 
and then trying to streamline the new tax system, they did something else. They passed legislation that consolidated over 2,000 districts into around 250. Whoa. So previously, there'd been a district for pretty much every single school, which is why there were so many. And this legislation consolidated them into town districts. And it was a trade-off. Then-Governor Levi Fuller said in his inaugural address that year that in many places, a system like this would improve education, but that in some smaller districts, the reform would cause, quote, considerable hardship. Hmm. And so a lot of Vermonters didn't take too kindly to Montpelier telling them what to do, especially when that was letting go of hyperlocal control of schools, which is why they gave this act a name only Vermonters in the 1890s could bestow, the Vicious Act of 1892. And obviously, that is not what the lawmakers called it, but it's how it's known to history. <laughs> I will say that when you use the words local control, I mean, there's a lot about this that's starting to feel very familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bill Mathis says those tensions that I mentioned before, they've been ebbing and flowing throughout the entire history of Vermont. Centralization and consolidation have always been uh, hot-button issues. So by 1900, there were just over 1,500 one-room schools in Vermont. 20 years later, there were about 1,000. And consolidation continued throughout the 20th century, when lots of other things were happening. There was war, industrialization, and national movements to reform education, to name just a few. Well, now, for the records, there's one thing, one or two things I'd like to tell you. This is an interview that was recorded as part of an oral history project done around 40 years ago, documenting the transition from those small schoolhouses to larger institutions. This is Eleanor Sampson recording uh, information with Mrs. Cora Spalding Brock, who taught school in this area. Today is June 13th, it happens to be Friday, and we're in Bristol, Vermont. Cora Rock taught in the early half of the 1900s. She says that not long before she began, it wasn't totally out of the ordinary for teachers to have no more than an eighth grade education themselves, plus a few summer courses. Cora started right after high school, teaching in a one-room school in Moncton. Now, back in the rural school, when my first school, Your first school uh -huh. was very interesting. Cora lived with a local family, which teachers often did. She paid them $5 a week to stay, and she happened to live with five of her students. When you lived with the uh, five children in the home that were your students. Did you feel like you had to help them at night with their schoolwork? Or? No, no. They never they, did they leave you alone? Could you go to your room or did you oh, wake up with the I family? Oh, I played or? right in, mixed right in with them. I uh -huh. was one of the family. Uh -huh. The school was a half mile from the house where they lived. And in the wintertime, when the snow was deep, one of the boys would go down to the little rural school and build a fire. I remember one winter with deep snow, they had no horse. He'd go down on the horse, and the horse would come back home. Mm -hmm. I'd go ride on the horse, and the horse would go back home. Each one of the children would take turns <laughs> riding down the schoolhouse on the horse. Huh. It definitely sounds pretty rugged. Yeah, this was the reality of Vermont's small schools for a really long time. And especially in the early days, buildings sometimes fell into a state of neglect, and teachers weren't highly trained, and they weren't paid much but they were also well-regarded members of the community. Well, Anna, what was it like to transition from a one-room schoolhouse to a larger school? 
Yeah. So one of the findings of this oral history project was that there were trade-offs between one-room schools and central schools. Some teachers felt a loss of a sense of mission and freedom, but others felt the gain of institutional support and a sense of professionalism. And this whole complicated transition, I think, is summed up pretty well in this bit of narration from a radio documentary series produced by the Vermont Historical Society in the 1980s. Many former teachers and students agree that the attributes of the one-room school, close family-like relationships, multi-age learning situations, and a strong sense of community spirit often offset the drawbacks of cold, drafty buildings, inadequate teaching materials, substandard outhouse facilities, and a lack of professional support. And whatever gains are credited to school consolidation, in many communities, the loss of the one-room school has removed a social center not easily replaced. So by the 1950s, the number of one-room schools was in the 500s, which, if you think about it, is still kind of a lot. And at this time, many high schools were consolidating into union high schools. But still, some of those small one-room elementary schools persisted, just like that schoolhouse in Moortown. But the reason I didn't go there was because in the 1960s... The the schools in Moortown were consolidated, and all the small one-room schools closed. That's Denise Gabbery again. From third grade on, Denise went to the same central elementary school that I went to more than 40 years later. Instead of walking to school, she rode the bus. And instead of one classmate her age, she had several. There were multiple classrooms, a gym, a library, and each classroom had only one or two grades in it. The first year especially, we were in with kids that we didn't know because they were coming from different parts of the town. So it it took some adjusting. And one day when I was about eight years old, which is the same age Denise was when she changed schools, my teacher shepherded my class onto the school bus and we drove around town, stopping at each one of the old schoolhouses so every kid could see where they would have gone to school. We got to go inside that red one on Moortown Common. I remember seeing axe marks in the wood floor next to where the wood stove used to be. There are many schools that have just, you know, gone into ruin or been torn down or, you know, not used. And uh, it's just kind of nice to see it there on the corner. Remember that, oh, yeah, I went to school there. Angela, I know we said we'd go through this history in three acts. At this point, we've gone through Act 1 and an oral history interlude, but there are two left to go. All right, so moving on to Act 2. Act 2, the Equal Educational Opportunity Act, also called Act 60. So you've probably noticed by now that money is a pretty big factor in the fate of Vermont schools. So something worth mentioning as we're getting closer to the present day is a decision that was made in the 90s. In 1997, the Vermont legislature passed Act 60. It came about because of a Vermont state Supreme Court decision that said the way education was funded was unconstitutional because it wasn't equitable statewide. Act 60 was intended to even out educational funding, so the quality of schools wasn't dependent on how wealthy a given district was. To do this, it established a statewide education tax and a formula to distribute that money. But some people didn't like the idea of funding schools in areas they didn't live in. 
That's how I got a punctured tire one night. No way. Oh, yeah. Uh, people were mad. People were angry. Wait, because because somebody was so angry that about Act 60, they punctured your tire? What were what was your role at the time? My role at the time? I was a do-gooder, I suppose. Bill Mathis, our education history expert, played a prominent role in the case. And Act 60 was revised by more legislation a few years later. And at this point, pretty much all the one-room schools in Vermont were closed, except for one or two outliers. But we should probably move on now to the third and final act, which is the one that got our question asker Chelsea started on this topic in the first place. So without further ado, Act 3. Act 3 is also Act 46. So the 20th century brought a lot of changes. But by the time I was an elementary school student in the early 2000s, some things still looked relatively similar to how they did 100 years earlier. Most towns had an elementary school, and each school had a school board. Education funding was still dependent on property taxes, though by this point there was a complicated statewide formula based on how many students there are. But the education system was facing more problems. One of the big ones was fewer students, a.k.a. declining enrollment. Enter Act 46, which was passed in 2015 and incentivized consolidation of school governance. And Bill Mathis, who I talked to, of the 10 members of the Vermont State Board of Education, he was the only one to oppose Act 46. Am I, is it correct that you were the only board member to vote against Act 46? I'm afraid that's true. When I asked him to tell me about the decision, he laughed. It hadn't been easy to be the outlier, but he stands by it. It's real clear to me is that uh, if we were giving up on our local schools, then we're giving up a whole lot of this democracy thing. We lose that, we lose the ball game. Proponents of Act 46 said consolidation would make for more efficient, sustainable, and equitable public schools, which is exactly what people in Vermont, from parents to governors, have been trying to achieve all along. But it hasn't been straightforward. Right now, the state is again rethinking how it funds education. It seems that the way Act 60 played out has not been quite as equitable as some people had hoped. And at town meeting just this week, voters in Addison County agreed to let one town basically secede from a district that had recently merged. That town is Ripton. It wants to strike out on its own to preserve its elementary school. Meanwhile, voters in Wyndham County decided to stay merged. So much about how we educate our kids feels really fluid right now, which is why consolidation is top of mind for people like our question asker Chelsea. And she doesn't even have kids. And something Denise Gabbery said about her one-room school closing in the 1960s sounds very similar to conversations that are happening in small towns right now. I can remember, um, you know, if something needed to be done at the one-room school, parents would come down and, and do it. And um, consolidated schools, they're from different towns, so... There's still a community, but it's not as closely knit, I, I don't think. And for all that's different now, you know, the school buildings, the buses, the technology, the teaching style, it seems as though some things haven't changed much at all. Bill Mathis says it's never just been about oversight or funding or efficiency. 
community, community people. That's the key to the whole thing. I brought all this back to our question asker, Chelsea Smiley. Yeah, it kind of blows my mind. (laughs) I, I didn't expect it to be such a close parallel. In some ways, history's repeated itself, but at least as far as Chelsea's concerned, it doesn't have to. I don't think that the story is over. Um, I think a lot of very passionate and thoughtful people are part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can listen to each other, I, I think that's what I hope will maybe make this less vicious this time. It's hard to say what the future holds. Data from the Vermont Agency of Education shows that public school enrollment is still steadily dropping. It went down 5% last fall. But if you look around any town, you'll see those old one-room schoolhouses. They're still here. And as for that little red schoolhouse in Moortown, it's a home now. A woman named Deborah lives there. And there's still a little bell in the tower on the roof, though it doesn't ring anymore. Too many wasps were getting in the slats, so Deborah stopped it up. But she told me that she didn't take it down in case someone in the future wants to ring it. And the axe marks are still on the floor. Anna Van Dyne. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Chelsea Smiley for the great question. If you have a question about Vermont or you want to sign up for the BLS newsletter, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. We are on Twitter and Instagram at BraveStateVT. This episode was produced by Anna Van Dyne and edited by Lynn McRae and me. We have engineering support from Peter Ankish. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions and the Heart Sisters. Special thanks to the Vermont Folklife Center, Margaret Nelson, the Vermont Historical Society, the Vermont College of Fine Arts, and Kathy Orr. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from VPR sustaining members. If you're a fan of the show, you can make a gift at bravelittlestate.org slash donate. I'm Angela Evansee. We will be back soon. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions.